0: So good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure and a privilege, as always, to be bringing the word. And this week, I am bringing Psalm chapter 20. So as we continue our series this summer, aptly named Summer in the Psalms, uh, we're going to be in Psalm 20. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you have your apps, you can open up there. And before we get to reading it, I think it's helpful to give a little bit of context. Because if you're like me, the first time I jumped in to kind of read and review this psalm as I was reading it, I read it as if it were about me. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And I was thinking, yes, thank you, Lord. It's so nice to have a prayer where it's as if the Bible is praying directly over me, asking the Lord to answer me and protect me. But unfortunately, that, that's wrong. That's a wrong first read of this. And that's not to say that praying that way would be an unbiblical prayer. It's actually a fine prayer and maybe eventually a fine application of this. But that's not what this psalm is primarily about. This psalm is a royal psalm. It's a prayer of intercession. It's a cry of faith from the people of Israel on the eve of battle of war. You see, the this, this psalm is entitled a psalm of David, but it might actually be more appropriately entitled a psalm for David because this psalm, the people of Israel, are, are lifting up a prayer of petition for their representative head, their king, King David. So this is a prayer that is coming from the people of God, that is Israel, the people of Israel, and they're praying to the Lord, and they're praying for their representative king, King David. So right before we hop in, we're going to read the psalm, but let's take a moment and pray real quick. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you uh, that we have your word to study. Lord, as we work through Psalm 20 today, Lord, may we be under the text. Lord, may we uh, hear from you what you would have for us today through these wonderful words preserved to us down through the generations so that we can worship and glory in you through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm chapter 20, to the choir master, Psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you, May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of the Lord our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord save the king, may he answer us when we call. Now It's worth remembering that the psalms are songs meant to be sung. Even more, they often have poetic elements about them, and it's no different with today's psalm. This psalm, Psalm 20, is a prayer of faith meant to be sung on the eve of battle or war, a cry of faith to the Lord for help in the day of trouble. And this psalm has a poetic shape and structure to it. Think of it a bit like a wave. It it it, and it starts on on one side and and builds to a crescendo to a pinnacle that we'll see is verse five and and we'll get there, and then comes back down. And and each side of the wave has a bit of a mirror to it. Now, the technical term for this is chiastic structure, and it's something that the Hebrews did, but for our scripture today, we're going to be Focusing in at the end on that, that, verse five, may we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of God set up our banners. But to get there, we're going to work our way through kind of each parts of the psalm and it'll seem maybe like we're jumping around a little bit, but really we're just kind of looking at the different sections of the wave that are grouped together. So we're going to look at a petition for help on the one hand, we're going to look at a declaration of truth and trust on the other, and then we're going to end up at that pinnacle a resolve to rejoice, a petition for help, a declaration of truth and trust, and finally, a resolve to rejoice. So let's hop into our text here, and we're going to look at that petition for help, which is verses 1 through 4, 5b, and 9. And again, that's that's that structure going on there where there's, there's that mirror. Verse 1, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. This is the introduction and frame of the entire psalm it lays the groundwork and sets the course for this psalm. This is a call of the people of Israel praying to the Lord for their king on the day or eve of trouble. And the king is their royal representative, their head. And so while they are praying for the king, he represents the whole nation. So his success is their success, and his failure is their failure. So in reality... Their prayer is, is, is for their own nation, and in a sense for themselves, for God's favor. And what's more, as the people of God, they are praying for the advancement of the kingdom of God. So let's look a little bit more of the content of the prayer. What are they praying here? They're praying for the Lord to answer. And for the Lord to answer actually presumes something. Because remember, they're praying for the king. So this presumes that the king himself, King David, is praying to the Lord himself. That he is being faithful to call out to the Lord for his help. So this petition is for the Lord to listen and hear and answer David's cries. What is the timing of the prayer? They ask for the Lord to answer in the day of trouble. What's the day of trouble? Difficulty, hardship. In in this case, it's likely literally the eve of of a battle where they're going to war to conquer Israel's enemies. And Israel has real enemies, enemies that aren't merely enemies of the people, but enemies of God. And so in that day that they are facing the enemies of God, going to war with them, in that day they are calling out for his help. Now, remember how I mentioned that this has a a sense of poetry about it, and and they're mirroring one another? Well, well, verses 1 and verses 9 are actually a mirror of one another. And... We see this a little bit more clearly um, in in the original text, so I'll kind of translate them to help highlight that. But verse 1 says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And verse 9 says, May he answer us in the day when we call. So there's that, that double stacking of those similarly worded petitions, in the day of trouble, in the day when we call. And this makes for beautiful poetry. But what's more, it makes for complete clarity of what this psalm is about. It's it's the Lord hearing and answering his people when they call out to him, when they have trouble, either calling out to him directly, as in verse 9, or we're there calling out to him through their representative head, that is the king. And the content and specifics of the rest of the verses fill out this prayer. So let's continue on. Second half of verse 1, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. This is a prayer for defense and protection. A prepare, uh, It literally means uh, to, to set you up on high as if on a rock. And it invokes the name of the God of Jacob, which is simply covenant language and understanding here. The God of the Bible is known as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And God has covenanted with these people. In fact, If we look at Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, we'll see part of that covenant where he's talking with Abraham and it says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And this is the very context of what they're likely about to do, to go to war, to take possession of the cities of their enemies. Continuing on in verse two, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. After this prayer of protection, they they further their prayer, so they're they're kind of expanding on this idea here and asking for help and support. But this isn't any kind of help and support. It's asking for God's very help and support. So what kind of help comes from the sanctuary? What kind of help comes from Zion? But God's very help and presence. The sanctuary refers to the tabernacle, that is the the tent of God's presence which dwelled among his people, the place where he made his name to dwell, as Deuteronomy 14.23 says. And then they're also asking for support. It's a demonstration of God's loving acts and provision. But for the sake of our psalm, we actually have to think of this in military terms. Someone who's about to go on a war campaign and, and that kind of support from the Lord is the support that takes care of all the king's needs as he goes out to battle. Continuing on in verse 3, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. This is a prayer for God's favor and uh, on the basis of right offerings and sacrifice. Now, again, we have that, that presupposition that I'm going to keep coming back to here because this verse presupposes something. Presupposes that David has been giving offerings and sacrifices. Because he has. And favor in this context on the eve of battle means victory over their enemies. Verse 4 here. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Now it's interesting here that they pray for his heart's desire. I mean, what, what if his heart's desire wasn't right? What if his heart's desire with, was evil? And, and, and again, that's the thing. It's presupposing a holy and righteous desire as would be the case with someone who is making sacrifices to the Lord with a right heart. And we know, after all, that the Bible talks about David as a man after God's own heart. And plans here are the results of deliberations before their campaign. They're they're getting ready for war. They're planning their tactics. And wise plans here would be deliberating in their heart before the Lord and in the counsel of wise men, again, together before God. Now skipping over to verse 5b, and again, we'll come back to 5a, which is that pinnacle. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. This is a prayer for God to answer all David asks. And I believe it's because he asks rightly. He's asking in line with the will of the Lord. James 4.3 talks about in the New Testament, you do not have because you do not ask rightly. And so we have to assume here that he's asking with a right heart. So here we see this glorious petition of Israel before before God asking for King David, their representative head, to have the help that he needs. So I have a question for us today. Who do you pray for like this? A few specific applications, because this is towards a representative head here. So wives, do you pray for your husbands like this? Children, do you pray for your fathers like this? Or, or for us all, congregation, do we pray for our pastors like this? You see, the, the Lord has set it up that we all have naturally have representative heads, whether in the Old Testament the king, subheads here with what husbands and fathers, or ultimately King Jesus. Now, those who are, are men here who may be in that position, I... I'm not going to let you off the hook here. I I think it's helpful to pay close attention to verses 3 and 4 and ask yourself this question. Are you living in a manner worthy of your calling? You see, the congregation can only pray for God to remember David's offerings and sacrifices because he is making offerings and sacrifices. The congregation of Israel can only pray for the Lord to grant the king's heart's desire and fulfill his plans and petitions because David is a man after God's own heart. David's heart is in line with God's heart. And David's plans and petitions are godly, kingdom-building plans and petitions. So men, are you living your lives in such a way that your wives, your children, and those under your authority can pray to God to remember your offerings and sacrifices. Now, we don't sacrifice bulls and rams as they do in the Old Testament. No, rather, we are the sacrifice, or, or maybe better said, our lives are the sacrifice. We are called to lay down our lives for others. We are called to live lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. We are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. But brothers, we do not do this in our own power and strength. No, we're only able to lay down our lives as living sacrifices on the basis of the one who lived a perfect life and laid it down for our sake. That is Jesus. Faith in him is the only means by which we can live a life in a manner worthy of our calling here. Faith in Jesus is the only basis by which we can be conformed to his image so that our heart becomes his heart and our petitions become his petitions and our plans become his plans. Now, congregation more in general here. I love that the Lord kind of flips some of these things on on their heads sometimes because I have a question for us and that is, who prays for you? And here's the encouragement. It's King Jesus. Our representative head is the one who prays for us. It's not that we are the representative head, but, but Jesus prays for us even now. Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 also attests to this. And it says, consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So what a prayer we have here. A petition for help. Israel crying out for their representative head as the start and basis of this psalm. Let's continue on to verses 6 through 8. We're going to look at that back half of the wave. A declaration of truth and trust. Verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Now we actually have a change of voice or perspective here. This voice and this, this verse and this verse only is different from the rest. The congregation of Israel was speaking and now here in this verse either the psalmist or more likely uh, David here, is speaking. And David is declaring a truth here. He says that he knows the Lord saves or gives victory to his anointed. Now, here in one sense, David is talking about himself as the anointed one. He was anointed king over Israel, and he's talking about himself in the third person. But in another sense, David may be looking towards the future anointed one of God. That is Christ. And we'll come back to that idea later on. So put a pen in that and, and we'll get back there. I promise. But for David in the present, this declaration of truth doesn't mean that the victory has, the, the war already happened, the victory has already been achieved. No, rather it's, it's an emphatic expression of confidence in the Lord. That the victory and the surrounding prayers of verses 1 through 5 are assured. David has total confidence that the Lord will give them victory, so much so that he will not answer just from the tabernacle on earth, no, but from his holy heaven. Again, a little bit of mirroring there. That is, to answer and and help will come from heaven itself. And this answer, this help, will come in power because the right hand of God refers to the power with which God will act. Let's move on to verses 7 and 8. and These are beautiful verses, often looked at as the seminal verses of this psalm, and with, <laughs> with I can't blame them, with the right uh, attitude. This is, these are such beautiful verses here, and encouraging verses. Verse 7. Some trust in chariots, and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we stand or sorry, we rise and stand upright. Now here the voice switches back, so we were the people, David in verse 6. Here, we're back to the people. And so the perspective is, is again, Israel. And, and these verses are a declaration of Israel's trust in the Lord and the Lord alone to answer their prayer. You see, God originally has some requirements for the kings of Israel. And there, there's a whole list of them in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. We're not going to go through all of them. But among those requirements for the kings of Israel was that they not acquire a great number of horses. And there's a reasoning behind this. It's so that Israel would not be tempted to look outside of God for their trust in what he was to accomplish through them and and in making them a nation. So what does it look like to trust in the name of the Lord? Well, quite simply, I think it looks like faith. That is a life that is oriented toward honoring and glorifying God, living in light of the kingdom of God, a trusting in the Lord. If you want specific examples, I'd encourage you to go to Hebrews 11. That's the hall of faith. And and there you might see things where, where you see that faith means offering our best to God in sacrifice. Or faith means pleasing God and not man with all of our lives. Faith means building what God tells you to build even if you are mocked for it. Faith means leaving your home And your family to go where God is calling you to make a new home. Faith means disobeying that evil edict from ruling authorities. Faith means refusing to identify in a way that that is safe and avoids persecution, but allows for the enjoyment of the fleeting pleasures of sin. Faith means rather identifying as the people of God, even if it means mistreatment in the present. And it goes on and on from there. But what then is maybe the modern equivalent of trusting in horses and chariots? From a military sense, it might be trusting in hypersonic missiles and Abrams tanks or something like that. But from a practical standpoint, I think we have to look at this a little differently. What are are the things that we are tempted to trust in instead of God? We might say some trust in job security and others in health insurance. Or we might say some trust in 401ks and others in psychology and therapy. Some trust in medicine and others in in scientism. Some trust in political powers and others in social justice. And it's not that any of those things are necessarily bad in and of themselves, although they could be, but the, the point of bringing those things up is what are we placing our trust in above God. Where is your hope? If your hope is found in something other than God, you have a trust problem. Now, if you want to diagnose this in your own life or ask yourself, I think you could ask yourself, well, what gives you anxiety? I think anxiety is is often the opposite of trust. The Bible identifies anxiety as a sin. We could also ask instead, what helps you to avoid anxiety. And I do mean avoid instead of overcome. Like I said, the Bible commands us to be anxious about nothing, Philippians 4, 6. Now, I want to take a moment here for a bit of mental health application because I know anxiety can be a real struggle for some. And some are saying, Seth, you're telling me anxiety is a sin. What am I supposed to do about that? I've been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. It's a mental health condition. At times, I can't help but not be anxious. And so you telling me anxiety is sin is giving me anxiety about my anxiety disorder. And if that's you or or someone you love, I want to take a moment to both comfort and challenge you today because it's a real struggle, and I understand that. We'll start off with that loving challenge. Just because you have a medical condition, and this could go for anyone, just because of your circumstance, but just because you have a medical condition doesn't mean that that condition isn't an excuse or temptation to sin. If we briefly looked at maybe an uncontroversial version of this, someone who has a physical physical medical condition of a broken leg, and that person could have the sin of laziness or pride, And, you know, if they have the sin of laziness, they break their leg. Great, I can take advantage of this. I can ask others to help me out, to get me food, to bring me drinks. All the while, that sin was already there, and it's just blossoming based off of that condition. Because they're making an excuse for themselves. Their leg is broken, and they can't do for themselves. Or maybe you're proud, and you've always done for yourself. You've always taken care of yourself, but... Now that your leg's broken, you can't seem to do that, but instead of accepting help, you're ignoring others to the point where you're, you know, slowing down your recovery, making your condition worse. All the while, pride is festering as you refuse to let others help you, even at that expense of your recovery, because you think you're self-reliant and industrious. These two people have the same medical condition, each where their hearts are sinful, but those hearts, those sinful hearts are seizing upon that circumstance for their sin to grow. If it's possible for that to happen happen with a physical medical condition, it's also possible for those temptations to come through with a mental health medical condition. So brothers and sisters, as the challenge or encouragement here, uh, don't let your condition or don't let your circumstance, whether it's anxiety, depression, OCD, anything, any other mental health condition, Be the occasion for which you are excusing your sin. But I want to move on to the comfort section because that is oh so important. We don't want to leave you without that. Where do we draw the line here? This can be especially difficult and tricky with mental health conditions. And I want to encourage you, first from Scripture, from Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, to tell you that God knows your frame. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. He knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. If there's something broken in your leg or not right with, with your head, it's like a strained ligament for your head, right, for your brain, God knows that. He knows your condition. But the problem is, when we're there, it can be hard, hard for us to see through that, to see what truth is. And so my recommendation here is I recommend finding a few wise men or women who are mature in the faith and who are trustworthy to give counsel and rely on them. These men or women should be gentle enough to walk with you through your trials and to help bear your burdens, but they should be loving and kind enough to to speak truth to you and call out your sin. Find those people and then be a completely open book with them. Hold back nothing and trust them to help you walk you through when you cannot see well for yourself so that we, as the body of Christ, can bear one another's burdens. Continuing on, in verse 8. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. The outcome here for those who trust the Lord is standing upright. That is total victory. The opposition, however, those who do not trust the Lord and are against the people of God will collapse and fall. They will suffer total failure. And so here in verses 6 through 8, that back half of the wave, we see this declaration of truth from David. This declaration of trust from the people. On the front half of the wave, we see the petition for help. And all of this building towards that verse. Five. First part of verse five. Five A. And that is the resolve to rejoice. Let's read verse five A. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of God, set up our banners. Here we have the pinnacle of this psalm. This is what the entire prayer of faith, the declaration of truth and trust, this is what it all builds towards, and that is this resolve to rejoice. The people here, the people of God here, on the eve of war, in prayer for David, are resolved to rejoice in the salvation that God will bring and to set up banners and flags of victory. Now, the battle has not yet been fought, and yet even still, they are resolved to rejoice. Why? Because the victory is assured it's assured because the victory is the lord's so why then is rejoicing the pinnacle of this song and i, I think it's helpful to to take a, a brief minute to look at the relationship between the prayers of position, petition and rejoicing and that relationship between trust in the lord and rejoicing so the first one what what's the relationship between prayers a petition for help and rejoicing and it's quite simply this joy is the result, the fulfillment, the consummation of prayer. Joy makes those prayers full. What about the relationship between trust in the Lord and rejoicing? Well, trust in the Lord is faith. And faith is the basis for our rejoicing. It's the ground beneath our feet on which we stand that enables us to rejoice. But get this, Rejoicing then builds faith. It's a positive feedback loop here, guys. We, we have faith in which we rejoice, which in turn builds more faith, which in turn causes us greater joy in rejoicing, which in turn builds more faith, and on and on. How beautiful that is. But if you are here today and you're struggling with your faith, You feel like you don't even have faith the size of the grain of a mustard seed. I would encourage you to find those who are rejoicing and to rejoice with them. Nehemiah 8.10 says it this way. It says, This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That is, the very joy that God possesses is our strength. If you feel weak and weary, if you feel you are lacking the strength to trust in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. Seek out the joy of the Lord. Find those who are rejoicing and rejoice with them. For the joy of the Lord will be your strength in that time. What's more, I think it's important to understand from a whole Bible perspective that rejoicing is actually a command. I'm going to read through a bunch of these shotgun Old and New Testament, but just to help you guys get a picture, that it's everywhere. Philippians chapter 3 verse 1 says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again to you is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. Interesting that rejoicing in the Lord, Paul says, is a safeguard. It guards our hearts. 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter 5, verses 16 and 18. Rejoice always. Pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let's not leave out the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 7, and there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice you and your households in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. We're to rejoice in everything that we do, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And Deuteronomy 16:11 broadens that scope of rejoicing, not just to us and our families, but all of those surrounding us. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, and your male servant, and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. What a broad and awesome scope of rejoicing. I think from that we have to take away the conclusion that as Christians, we are to be people of joy. We're here to be people of joy and rejoicing. So great, Seth, how, how do we do that? How do we, how do we rejoice? Well, how did Israel do it? They had a calendar full of festivals, all remembering and commemorating what the Lord had done for them in celebration and in joy and looking forward to what he would do. So what does that look like for us? Christmas. Do you just, do you just get through Christmas? Or do you intentionally take it to be a season of joy? What about Easter or Thanksgiving? You know, maybe we should actually add some more uh, dates to our calendar so that, that we rejoice in the Lord more often. Now, we do have 52 of them a year, and that's called the Sunday Sabbath as a celebration. So let's not forget that. But even greater, even greater, rejoicing in the Lord. What about raising a banner? Because that's also part of this verse. It's very distinctive, to raise a banner. And what does raising a banner mean? Well, if we look just back to July 4th, Independence Day, there were U.S. flags everywhere, Uh, and it's a celebration of independence. It's a declaration of victory, the birth of our nation. Look back to World War II, ticker tape parades. Whenever there is a victory, the flags go out, the flags go out that 's what flags are a sign of a sign of victory and a sign of of, uh, of uh, glory and honor, just declaring what it is. So how about for Christians? What does it look like for us to raise our banner? Does it mean like we go out and get a physical flag or Christian flag and, and put it up on a flagpole? I mean maybe i don't want to discount that or I don't, a Jesus fish or a bumper sticker? Maybe again, but I, I think I want to ask, what about publicly sharing our faith? And I don't mean just going out and evangelizing, although certainly this is included in that. But what about just sharing the victories that Christ has given you and giving God the credit to those around you? You know, do the, those around you that most know you, your coworkers, or that you interact with the most, your coworkers, your schoolmates, do they even know you're a Christian? Do they know that Jesus is the joy of your life? Brothers and sisters, don't be afraid to be the person that others look like and say, that person is way too excited about Jesus. <laughs> don't be afraid to be the person when you're lovingly quoting scripture to them, not in an in a overbearing way, but when you're lovingly quoting scripture to them and they're like, that guy's kind of a Bible basher. You know, Don't be afraid to be that person that people are like, wow, what, what is his deal? He is different. She is different. Now, another question for us. As people of joy, what do we need to be wary of? What do we need to look out for? I think the opposite of joy is murmuring, complaining, grumbling, whining, moaning. It's, it's, a, it's a lack of faith. Philippians 2:14 says do all things without grumbling or disputing or some other translations say without grumbling or complaining. You know I think a helpful way to think about this is to think about what unbelieving friends or acquaintances tend to complain about. They complain about their husbands, they complain about their wives, they complain about their children, they complain about their parents, they complain about their work, their pay, they complain about the weather. They complain about the stupidity of coworkers or taxes, on and on and on and on. And as one pastor said, I think it's helpful to look at one of the most potent evangelistic things you could do is simply express gratitude publicly for the things that they like to complain about. So, as people of joy, we must endeavor to express gratitude especially gratitude towards Christ, publicly, publicly. Let us have that kind of resolve to rejoice. Now, moving towards the end here, but I did say we would get back to how Jesus may be some of the the fulfillment of this, how this looks forward to Jesus. So as the people of God, we are to be people of joy and celebration. And this isn't some kind of fake joy that we put on, but rather a joy that's based in the assurance, assurance of our salvation. We are joyful because our victory is assured. Unlike the Israelites who wrote the song, or David, we have the benefit of knowing Jesus and having the Holy Spirit. We see the fulfillment that they longed for. In fact, while on one level, this entire psalm is a prayer for David, In another sense, this psalm looks forward to David's offspring, the shoot of Jesse, that is, Jesus. Imagine with me, if you will, that you are one of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, except you're maybe a little bit more faithful and not falling asleep than they are, and you are praying through this psalm for Jesus. I'm going to walk through this psalm again in brief fashion and see how this psalm is fulfilled in Jesus. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. He faced the ultimate day of trouble in order to be the answer for God's people. The answer they were calling for in their day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Jesus is that name. His name is the only name by which we can be protected and saved. May he send you help from the sanctuary, and give you support from on Zion. He is the help that came from the sanctuary. He gave us support by going to the cross on Zion. May he remember all of your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. As Christ is about to go to the cross to be the offering once for all, Jesus' offering, Jesus' sacrifice is the only one which God ultimately remembers and gives regard. Is the only one by which we may have favor with God. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. You know, Jesus asked the Father if this cup could pass from him in that day, and God's answer was no. But Jesus' ultimate and greater desire was to fulfill God's will and going to the cross. Even if, in a sense, his lesser human desire was that he asked if there be another way, his ultimate desire was in line with God because he obeyed God in going to the cross. Verse 5, may we shout for joy over your salvation and the name of God set up our banners. banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions again leads us to the pinnacle of the psalm in jesus we shout for joy over the salvation of david which is the salvation of israel which is ultimately our salvation purchased by christ's death on the cross verse six now i know the lord saves his anointed he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand the lord did save his anointed jesus but it wasn't what we thought victory might look like. Rather, victory coming from heaven itself and with the power of heaven itself, a victory that, uh, in Christ that he purchased for all who believe in him by dying on the cross and most importantly, rising on the third day that we see that victory. Verses seven and eight. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the name of the Lord our God that we trust in now. All who are in him will rise and stand upright. All who are opposed to him will collapse and fall in that final day. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Jesus is the current fulfillment of this psalm. But there's more here. Jesus is also the future fulfillment of this psalm. We can have confidence that the Lord will answer us in any present or future day of trouble because he has already provided the answer to us through Christ's day of trouble on the cross. We live in the already but not yet tension of the church age here. Already Christ's kingdom has been inaugurated. He is ruling and reigning today. Christ is king of kings and lord of lords today. So in one sense, we already have the victory and salvation that this prayer is praying for. But we also live in the not yet. That is not every enemy has been defeated yet. 1 Corinthians 15:25 and 26 puts it this way. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. All enemies must be put under Jesus' feet. And until his glorious return at the second coming, we will still face enemies in this life. Enemies which will give us days of trouble and days where we call out to the Lord. But our calls to God and our days of trouble stand on an assurance that they did not see clearly yet in David's day we can sing this psalm with eyes of faith and rejoicing, knowing that we may face the battle, but God has already won the war. We face our days of trouble, knowing that Christ holds us fast because of the joy set before him, he endured his day of trouble on the cross. And so that should give us confidence and faith greater than that of David's day. He looked forward, David that is, to the salvation that God would provide through his line, but he did not know what that salvation would look like. And even still, he rejoiced in that salvation because he was sure his God would bring it. We, brothers and sisters, have the word of God testifying to that salvation, testifying to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Even more, we have the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts, making us new, and testifying that we are children of God. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. The people in this psalm, before their king went to battle, felt sure of victory and therefore began to rejoice beforehand. How much more ought we to do this who have seen the victory completely won? Church, what do we do next? I'll tell you what, we rejoice. We shout for joy over the salvation, our salvation in Jesus. We set up our banners to celebrate and declare victory in Jesus. Let's pray together as the band starts here. Dear Lord, thank you for your son Jesus who is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 20 that we may shout for joy over our salvation found in you, that in your name, Jesus, we may set up our banners and declare your victory that you purchased for us on the cross, amen.